1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Stephen Doyle about his storied career as one of the country's most innovative designers. As a designer, you have to be careful that you don't fall into the solutions that you know. And that's, that's what's fun about working in so many different categories, is I don't know anything, so I can't fall back on anything. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: It's impossible not to instantly recognize Stephen Doyle's graphic work when you come across it. Whether it be in the New York Times, on a David Byrne CD, or just about anything with a Martha Stewart logo on it. He is a designer and an artist, and he shapes language into sculptures. He transforms words into striking images, and images into words. Stephen Doyle is the creative director at Doyle Partners, a design studio that creates identity programs, packaging, magazines, books, and environmental graphics for a variety of clients. He is also a colleague of mine at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he joins me now in our brand new broadcast studio. Welcome to Design Matters, Stephen.
2: Thanks, Debbie. It's great to be here.
0: Oh, it's wonderful to have you here as our inaugural guest in the studio.
2: I got all dressed up for this.
0: I see. Very dapper. (laughs) Always, though. You're always very dapper. So first, before we even get started with the interview, it must be said, congratulations on your getting this year's National Design Award from the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum. Such an incredible, incredible, incredible honor.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really, um, I was kind of blown away by that. I didn't expect it. I didn't see it coming. And I'm thrilled to be this year's recipient.
0: Congratulations. Uh,
2: th- the reason I didn't expect to get it is that I don't think of my work as very flamboyant. And it's easy, I think, to a- award flamboyant work. And I mentioned this to someone from the museum when she called me to tell me that I had won. And she said that the jury actually commented that the work was not flamboyant. And that's what drew them to the work, that it wasn't so flashy compared to some of the other portfolios that they were looking at. So I was very flattered by that.
0: What would you consider to be flamboyant work?
2: Work that is intentionally created for design annuals rather than thoughtfully crafted for the audience or the job that it has to do.
0: That's interesting. I was struck as I was looking at your body of work in preparing for today's interview, in the rather extraordinary range that you have, I didn't even actually realize that you had designed Stephen Colbert's book, I Am America. And uh, so
2: can you. As, <laughs> yes.
0: and, and as I was looking through your, your website and, and all the work that's online, I was struck by your ability to really cater to this specific timbre of the audience, of the message, and reach down inside the client's soul to be able to communicate. with rip, rip
2: their financial hearts out. <laughs> I have so much fun romping around in lots of different categories, Debbie. I feel so often like I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm completely over my head. I'm, I'm in some kind of new zone where I've never been before, and I just love it. Um, we started our studio 25 years ago, and it's been a really incredible path that has been organic, I guess, in that we started doing books and magazines, which is the world from which I came earlier in my career. And then eventually we got into doing packaging, and then eventually we got into doing branding. And right now I'm spending a lot of time doing environmental graphics so that I'm actually working in stone and glass and steel and working in city parks and coming up with ideas for instance of how to commemorate the site of Yankee Stadium. So we're approaching projects that that aren't really design projects in a, in a literal way. It's not so much about graphic design, but it's really a much bigger communicative issue to tackle of like how do you tell a story in a park without making a big footprint? How do you infiltrate a space with a sense of history or wonder? And it's just so much fun to be solving these kinds of problems at this point in my career.
0: Now, the last time I interviewed you, you told me that you had worried that you had sold your soul to the devil in exchange for a lifetime of creativity. Yeah, I did. (laughs) When and how?
2: I guess it was in high school that I realized that the only thing that would keep me going through a whole lifetime to keep me... Amused and entertained and stimulated was to be able to be creative and I wanted it more than anything else. Um, I didn't actually sell my soul. I just kind of rented it. But if such a bargain could have been struck, I would have struck it. And because I was focused on that at the time, it made me be a very conscientious observer to witness how people made things and where ideas came from, and how to borrow ideas and transform them and take them from one place to another, to take an idea from here and use it there. The word metaphor um, comes from a Greek root, which actually means to carry something from one place to another. And that's kind of my design strategy, to borrow and beg and steal, but to transform things by putting them in unlikely places.
0: So where do you think ideas come from?
2: They come from other people's ideas, and and taking other people's ideas and bending them, bending them to my own will. Uh, but that that's where inspiration comes from, and ideas come from inspiration.
0: Can you give us an example of an idea that you've bent and reappropriated for your own
2: work? I'm just about to steal one of Paula Scher's ideas. Uh, Some of the graphics that she's done on the exterior of a building, I I don't know the name of the building, great big letters all over just covering this.
0: Oh, I believe that's in Philadelphia. Yeah,
2: a beautiful project. Um, We were just asked by the Times Square Alliance to give a graphic identity to Restaurant Row. And that's a, what is it, 46th Street between 7th and 8th or something like that. And there are a couple of parking lots on this street. And the great thing about that is that there are these big sidewalls with nothing on them because they're the sides of townhouses. And one has this old, old sign that says Park that must have been painted in the 50s or something, and it's peeling and it's chipping. And that's the inspiration... That mixed with Paula's idea, I want to paint messages all over these walls, you know, six stories high down to the ground and maybe paint the parking lot itself. But uh, I want to paint it so that it looked like it was done 50 years ago. I want it to look like it's peeling and chipped and coming off. And I think it'd be really great fun to infiltrate this historic block with something that was done a long time ago. With its legacy, with its very own legacy. Yeah, it's masquerading as the past in the present
0: Speaking of the past, you went to Cooper Union. You studied under Milton Glaser and Henry Wolfe.
2: That was the very best class because it was a class in magazine design. And Henry and Milton never agreed on a thing. They fought like cats and dogs. In front of all the students. In front of everybody. And, And I realized then that in design there is no right and therefore there is no wrong. So I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to do this as a career because I can't possibly fail.
0: Did you really worry
2: about failing? Absolutely. Why? I always worry about failing. Still?
0: Yeah. Has the recession impacted you and impacted your business?
2: I'm not worried about that kind of failing. I worry about falling short of potential. As a designer, you have to be careful that you don't fall into the solutions that you know. The easy Yeah, act. And that's, that's what's fun about working in so many different categories is I don't know anything, so I can't fall back on anything. So there's, there's this huge learning curve all the time. But I come to problems imagining that I'm the audience, and the audience is uninitiated, and so am I. So that, that's always a good diving platform.
0: So after Cooper Union... Your first job out of school was working at Esquire?
2: That's right. It was Esquire Fortnightly, and it was um, owned at the time by Milton Glaser and Clay Felker and a bunch of backers. Milton was the, I guess he was the design director at the time.
0: And did your previous relationship at school influence that? Were you like his pet student? Did you bring him apples every day? No, I
2: I didn't bring him apples. Uh, I don't think I was his pet. We always got along well, but I got along well with Henry. Henry Wolf as well in the same class.
0: Did you ever feel like you had to sort of figure out how to manage (laughs) the the relationships since they were always fighting? Was it like screaming match fighting?
2: No, 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 no. They were respectfully disagreeing, but they were vehement in their beliefs, which also was inspiring.
0: So what was it like working under
2: Milton? I remember the the best failure that we had. Um, They were doing a story about Mario Andretti, race car driver, and looking through 35 millimeter transparencies to find a good image to have Marvin Madelson paint a cover and... They found one where you could actually see Andretti. So they had it painted up and they printed the issue. And only then did they realize that the reason that you could see him was that it was a toy sports car, not a real racing car. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the magic. So, yeah, yeah. A little embarrassment there.
0: <laughs> and so from Esquire, you then went to Rolling Stone. Yes, I did. And how did you make that change? Did they come after you? Did you hear about some opportunity
2: there and applied? There was an opening, so I applied for it. I had been at uh, Esquire for three years, and it seemed like enough time. I, at Esquire, I learned about art directing. I assigned a lot of artwork, and it seemed to me that, that what was missing in my career was a better understanding of typography. And it seemed like Rolling Stone would be the perfect place to go and practice that. And we worked with type on a typositor and mm. cut out mechanicals and sent type through waxers and stuff like that. But it was a great resource for me to hone my typographic skills.
0: You've worked at two of the greatest magazines in history. You've worked redesigning other magazines since having your own company. What do you think of the future of the magazine business?
2: Gosh, I'm no, I'm no uh, fortune teller for sure. I, I think that storytelling has a future, and whether it's printed or electronic is, is less important than the relevance of the story.
0: So after your magazine stint... You had a very big opportunity in your life, and that was to work with Tibor Kelman, the late, great Tibor Kelman. How did you get that job?
2: I got that job through a friend of mine. Tom Woodruff is a... I think he's the director of the illustration program at SVA. Um, and he lived in the same building as Tibor and knew that I wanted to... I I, after, I was in magazines for about five years, and I thought maybe there's, there's something else out there. I, I was tired of working in a... Uh, the same format, you know. It's really fun to be a magazine designer because you meet authors and become friends with them. Editors are really smart people. Um, I loved the world, but I, I really did get tired of the of the cycle and the format. And uh, I wanted to work at a design studio simply to understand how they operated and to also. Uh, To learn how to produce things, um, learn how to print. I didn't know how to print uh, because magazines are printed by other people. So Tom recommended that I call up this guy who lived in his building, uh, and it turned out to be Tibor. Of course, there was no Internet then. It was very hard to find out who was who and who was doing what.
0: So he wasn't already the bad boy of design?
2: No, he wasn't. He was was benign at that point. Really? Yeah.
0: What was that like?
2: It was kind of fascinating. I feel like... uh, on my first day at M & Company, Tibor fired everybody that worked there and asked me to rehire. So it was a kind of a great opportunity. It was terrifying for me because I had to do all the work that was there. But it was a great opportunity to bring in my friends and students. So that, that's when the big Cooper Union influx at M & Company happened. And that's when we began to really turn things around in terms of the craftsmanship of the work. Uh, Tibor was not a trained designer, and he was a really brilliant editor. Uh, he, he had ideas about things, but he didn't know how to make it. So I was given the opportunity to, to bring in the makers. And that included, of course, Alex Isley. Eventually, my, my current partner, Tom Klopfell, came to join us. And uh, we had such a great time. I remember sitting around the conference room just in hysterics because we would make so much fun of our clients the minute they walked out the door.
0: <laughs> Can you give me an example? No, <laughs> because you can't remember it. Because no, I, no. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> so, if you you so you took the job before Tibor was the bad boy, what was it like to then go through the trajectory of a fairly benign firm to? arguably the most influential firm of its time.
2: I don't know if it was the most influential. Oh, it was. was. It? it was. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Actually, just watching the trajectory of m and changed my life because it inspired me to want to reconsider my entire career. I wanted to do really? something that special. I wanted to try to do something that could have that kind of impact on people.
2: We were trying to do stuff that was wrong in order that it would stand out. Um, we were trying to do things that were made in the basement, things that were inexpensive, things that were stupid and upside down, as a backlash to the slickness of what was going on in the 80s in design. And what M & Company was about was about humanism and humor and... Soul.
0: Yeah. I always felt like the work that came out of M & Company was full of humanity and soul. Absolutely. So what made you decide to leave?
2: Um, I wasn't making any money, and... A client said, so why do you have this agent? Why aren't you doing this for yourself? And it got me thinking. And the client was Rizzoli. And they said, if you leave M & Company, we'll give you absolutely every book in our list to design. Wow. Which was really delicious.
0: Would they not have given it to you had you stayed at M & Company?
2: Yes, they would not have.
0: Any particular reason why?
2: Personality clashes with Mm -hmm. the boss. (laughs) Um, So uh, eventually I, I teamed up with Bill Drantel. And we thought we could start a design studio that would do marketing and graphic design, advertising and design, which was a kind of a European idea. The Brits were doing it where an ad campaign actually tied into a brand uh, or an identity of a company so that, the you know, you face the public with one face, Integrated. one voice. Yep. Yeah. And it, so Bill and I set up this shop and uh, waited for Rizzoli to give us all their books. And they hired us to design a poster, which we worked on for about two years. And then it <laughs> took about another two years to get paid.
0: And what about the list of books?
2: What about it? Still waiting? Still waiting.
0: So was Tibor mad when you left?
2: Yeah, he didn't expect me to leave. He, he thought that I didn't have the potential to have a studio of my own, I think. He, he thought that he was the only show in town. And he was. Until we started.
0: Until Trentell Doyle started. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, um, I was fascinated by the work that you were then doing with Bill and kept watching from the sidelines to see your credits on different posters and books and so forth that came along. You did that for how many years together?
2: Like 11 or 12 years. Oh, that long. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And so then you decided, okay, I went from working at a bunch of big magazines to working at a medium-sized company to having a smaller company, and now it's time to put out the shingle on your own. Absolutely. And so what was the motivation in doing that, and how did you get your courage up to do it?
2: Well, actually, I did it in order to get the failure of it behind me. I did not expect it to work. I really expected it to fail.
0: Why did you go into so many of these situations in your life expecting to fail, Stephen Doyle?
2: Failure is a great motivator.
0: But what what is that intrinsic sense of dread? What are you afraid of, really?
2: It's. I guess it's just nice to know that the abyss is there. It's nice to be conscious of the abyss at every moment. So you won't be surprised when you fall you, into it? Then you know it? you appreciate your mountaintop.
0: Okay. So are you appreciating your mountaintop?
2: I'm loving it.
0: So so talk about starting your own business. What was the first thing you did when you started
2: Doyle Partners? We had a wonderful studio in Irving Place with giant windows that were pivoted in the center. So they, they swung out over the street and into the studio, and they were huge. The first thing we did was wash them, and the difference in this little tiny space with this little wobbly walk-up, which kept catching fire for some reason, we we had to evacuate that studio so many times. <laughs> How you did know, it catch I don't know. The roof was waxer. on fire. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> the studio didn't burn, it was it was the building was constantly on fire. Um, it was just this little crazy fire trap of a building. Um, it never actually so burned. like
0: firemen and trucks and yeah, yeah. hoses and yeah. axes and
2: yeah yeah yeah. It was very exciting
0: and and so you decided to move
2: after two years, we outgrew the space, but um, there was there was some theater. The first project that we had, I think, was to design a book called "The Old Gringo" by Carlos Fuentes. Bill was good friends with David Reef. They went to school together. David was at Farrestrass and Giroux, and that was the beginning of the publishing of. Randall Doyle Partners. We worked in publishing for years and years, designing books, designing jackets, designing series of books for Susan Sontag and for Carlos Fuentes. And that was the start. About the same time, too, we we were redesigning The New Republic for Marty Peretz, who was a friend of Bill's. And we landed Spy Magazine. So it was really fun to be working on The New Republic and Spy at the same time because they were completely across the block from each other.
0: Spy really redefined how magazines were designed, and it was extremely risky. I remember the anticipation leading up to the first issue coming out and being so incredibly jealous when I saw the first issue because, yet again, you managed to
2: get it wrong.
0: Get it so right by being so different and being so inventive and innovative with typography, with the way photography was being used, with with the way that humor was being portrayed, not only in the content, but also in the way that everything looked and felt. I mean, talk about integrated. That yeah. was a really integrated message and a really integrated brand. Yeah. And it
2: was brilliant to work with Kurt and Graydon. They were absolute geniuses, and it was, it was amazing to watch their evolution into this crazy, crazy thing. We had so much fun doing that magazine.
0: Now, as, as proprietor of your own firm with your own name on the shingle, you are constantly, I'm, I'm assuming, given your reputation, being offered projects and being asked to do different types of things. How do you decide what projects you want to do, or do you ever have to worry about getting business
2: Certainly, we worry about getting business, but we just don't do anything about it. Uh, we wait for it to come in, and it does um, so you just wait for the phone to ring we do or or the email to to pop in. There are some projects that we turn down um, because they're not interesting. We try to do work that only we can do or work that is going to be where we can make a real difference to the project. If it's something that, that could be done by anybody or if it's boring or if it's territory that we feel like we've covered already, we'll turn it down. We have turned away from categories as we've gotten older what does that mean as one must we we kind of don't do any publishing projects anymore why um book covers are a young designer's job i think um, there's they, they take too long uh, there's too much help from the client these days um, that's a nice way of putting it <laughs> <laughs>
0: thought that you'd slip that one by <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of too old to have somebody suggest that I use a certain font or a certain color. color or, you know, I, uh, that's that's my expertise to do that. Um, so, by walking away from categories of work, we have to find new categories, and that that's really kind of fun and interesting.
0: And you seem to be making quite a lot of your own categories lately with some of the work that you're doing that is almost midway between design and art. Some of the work that you've done with the dollar bills, for example, where you transform a dollar bill into a message, essentially.
2: Yeah. Making things with my hands has always made me happy. And since about 2000, I've been creating sculptures out of books. And that means cutting up each line, cutting the lines out of the book, and reforming them into structures. Um, I guess the, the, some of the dollar work started with Wired magazine when they asked me to do illustrations for stories about money becoming digital or, or stuff like that. So then I, I got out of the books and into the dollars, and then the, the Times called me and asked me to do some uh, illustrations for maybe four or five book reviews about the financial collapse last year. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity to make a metaphor to take something that is familiar and iconic like a dollar and transform it. And what I did was to remove parts of it because it was about financial collapse. And by by perforating one in a maniacal fashion, this is not easy perforation. This is nutcase perforation.
0: You must have had a really sharp blade to do that
2: i have got boxes of them or did
0: you use a laser cutter
2: no 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 (laughs) it has to be done by hand because the hand um is imperfect and i really like the cruddiness of these fanatical constructions that they are never perfect and i think that that gives them i don't know it gives them that kind of warmth and personality of humanism it's that same m and company element
0: Now, what gave you the motivation or or what was the inspiration for opening up a book and beginning to chop away at it? Taking a knife to it seems very metaphorical in many ways. And I'm wondering what the impetus was to start working that way.
2: It's hard to say, actually. The first sculpture that I did was The Professor's House by Willa Cather. Extraordinary book. And it was in the early days of the Internet, and I thought that the idea of hot links, that you'd be reading this thing, and you'd click it and be connected to something else. it it, My, my Jesuit schooling um, was challenged by that idea of the removal of context, because we're used to reading or had been used to reading in a li- linear fashion. You always knew where you were. You knew who was the authority. If you read The New Yorker, it's The New Yorker, and it comes across in a certain way whereas other magazines have a different voice. The idea of jumping around like that seemed to be kind of sad. So I wanted to make a sculpture of it to make fun of it. So I started cutting up this book and gluing every line to every line in a grid formation that was kind of hanging from the ceiling. And it was meant to be a parody of the Internet. But instead, something else happened that surprised me, which is that it it came to have a certain weight and gravitas on its own, that the lines of text were determining a kind of architecture. And it's when people we st- were talking about information architecture. And <laughs> I call these things, I call them hypertexts, because it's the text that's doing the messaging, but in a visual way.
0: And in an incredibly artistic, almost heartbreaking, very complex, emotionally way. <laughs> I mean, there's so many feelings that get invoked when looking at these pieces,
2: I really like the lack of logic in these pieces. Um for twenty five years I've run a studio where we try to work logically and then humanistically to bring things to life. But it's it's really about it's about purposeful problem solving and it seems to me that to have a balanced existence, you've got to create some problems instead of just solve them. I like that they're like riddles or cones or that you can't quite figure out why they are the way they are. I I think that in this age of speed and information, to arrive at a place that has a little bit of mystery or complexity is a real luxury where you can go someplace or see something that makes you be quiet and makes you Reflect and consider, um, and that's that's what I love about these sculptures. People have a, a very emotional reaction to them, which I never expected. It's it's hard for me to talk about them because they're my work, and I don't I don't know if they have any value or not. But people seem to respond to them, and that gives me enormous pleasure.
0: So, Cooper Union, Esquire, Rolling Stone, and Company, Trental Doyle, and now Doyle and Partners.
2: This is like sounding like an obituary or something, Debbie.
0: Hardly hardly. You've won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award for Communication. What's next? How do you see yourself moving forward now with the next phase of your career?
2: That's such a great question and and absolutely timed because now I'm getting really interesting projects and they're projects outside. I'm loving working in New York City parks. We're working on on the, the Park Heritage Field where Yankee Stadium was and Our solutions there are not graphic design solutions. We've created this thing we're calling a view master, which looks like binoculars, but in, hidden inside is like that old view master thing. So you're going to be able to look into these things and click through photographs and actually look into the past. Really? Yeah. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. So we're we're developing with an industrial designer the prototype for this thing. And as soon as Parks heard about it, they're ecstatic because they want to put it now You know, at the aquarium in Coney Island, which is another project we're working on. They're going to put it at Steeplechase Park out in Coney Island that I think they. Rockwell's working on. Um, so the idea of being able to invent new ways of communicating out there with the public, I mean, I really feel like I've graduated from small to big or, or private to public sector in a way. And I'm just loving being able to use the city as a canvas.
0: Well, I'm glad you never had to sell your soul to the devil to be this creative. But if you had... I think he'd be very proud of you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stephen Doyle, for such an extraordinary interview. Thank you, Debbie. That was so much much. fun. Thank you. Stephen Doyle is a creative director of Doyle Partners. You can see some of their work on their website, DoylePartners.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.